The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter in the 16th verse. The 16th verse in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men. Now that's obviously a part of another and a larger statement. So I'm going to read from verse 14 to verse 21. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You will never hear anything greater than that. However long you may live in this world, whatever orator may arise, you will never hear anything equal to that in eloquence, in elevation of thought, in profundity of language and of conception. It is undoubtedly one of these great mountain peaks in the scripture. There are many who would say, and I have no doubt that they are right, that this is the highest peak of all in the whole glorious range of scripture truth, of divine revelation. We are looking, you remember, at uh, the actual prayer which the Apostle offers for these Christian people in Ephesus to whom he writes this great and vital letter. We saw last Sunday morning how he approaches God and how careful he is to remind us of that and to insist upon our realizing that. He bows his knees before the Father. And thank God he is not only his Father in Jesus Christ, but he is the Father of all these Ephesians also, the Father of every Christian. Through our blessed Lord and Savior, we are entitled to say, Our Father. We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him to the Father. Well, very well, having thus entered into the presence of God, what is it that the Apostle prays for these Ephesians who are so much upon his heart? Now we have in the Scriptures many recorded prayers of this great Apostle, and they all are worthy of our most careful and serious consideration and always well repay study. But as I say, 
There is nothing, no prayer of his, which rises higher than this one. He really does lift us here right into the heavens and prays for things which are almost incredible, rising, you remember, to that climax, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this is what he writes to these Ephesians, many of whom had been slaves and were perhaps still slaves, probably were. People were unknown, we've never known their names, we know nothing about them, but all we do know is that they were Christians. And because of that, the apostle here offers this prayer for them and takes us, as we look at his prayer and study it together, to the very highest reaches, the topmost level of Christian experience and and of what is possible for us in this present world. And therefore we are going to look at this together. And we are going to examine it carefully and closely. There is no doubt at all, but that here is the real key to true Christian living. And therefore we cannot spend too much time with it, we cannot examine it too closely. Now let us look at it first of all in a more or less general manner. Let us bear in mind as we do so the context, the conditions in which and under which the apostle was praying and the conditions which applied also to the Ephesians. For this cause, he says, he has been unfolding to them this wonderful doctrine of the Christian church at the end of chapter 2 and has been reminding them that they are all stones in this lively building, this living building that's going up. And uh, he now wants them to realize that because of that, there are certain things that must follow quite inevitably, because that is their position in Christ. Well, then he says, I want you to realize the possibilities that are open to you. Not only that, because you are that, I want you to realize what you must be in order that you may function like that in a worthy manner and in the manner for which you were designed. But at the same time, the apostle, it seems to me, is also undoubtedly carrying in his mind what he's been saying in this digression that we've been looking at from the second verse to the end of verse 13. This tendency on their part to be worried and concerned about him being in prison and perhaps fearful of persecution themselves and of certain things that might happen to them. Very well, there's our setting and our background. Now he prays for them. What does he pray for them? And here at once we notice something very remarkable. We must notice, first of all, what he doesn't pray for. To me, that's very significant. And as we read our scriptures, we must always be careful to observe things like that. What the scriptures do not say at times are almost as important, is almost as important as what it does say. And here it seems to me what the apostle doesn't pray for has a tremendous significance for us. Because, put it like this, imagine yourself in the position of the apostle. How would you have prayed for these Ephesians? What would you have prayed for? What do we pray for one another? What is it? when we know that others are in trouble and in difficulties, 
we do petition for them. What's the character of our intercession? Well now, let's notice therefore what the Apostle doesn't pray. He doesn't pray for any change in circumstances, either for himself or for them. He, his prayer is not that uh, he may be brought out of prison in order that he may go back and preach to them in Ephesus. That was a very desirable thing, and I've no doubt that he did even pray for that. But that isn't the big thing. That isn't the thing he puts in the center. That's not the thing he wants to impress upon them. He's not praying for a change of circumstances, either for them or for himself. He doesn't pray for better circumstances either. That isn't mentioned at all. Neither does he merely offer some kind of general prayer for them that God may bless them and that God may be good to them. I'm emphasizing this particularly because it seems to me that this is the negative that is most important here. Far too often our prayers are just general. We pray God's blessing upon people. We, we pray that God may be gracious unto them and may look upon them. And we leave it in that way as some kind of a general prayer. Now, the, the apostle doesn't do that. Well, what is his prayer? Well, look at it positively. Here is his prayer. Here's the first petition. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now then, here we find... What is always a characteristic of this man's prayers, and what is always at the same time the characteristic of all the uh, biblical prayers, Old Testament and New. Here we are introduced to the characteristic Christian way of viewing these problems that are incidental to our lives in this world, many of which arise directly because of our profession of the Christian faith. Well, now then, what are the two characteristics? Well, here they are. The first is, you notice, that his prayer is a, an exclusively spiritual one. What he's praying about is the spiritual condition of the people. Not the material, but the spiritual. He focuses his attention and is concerned about nothing but their spiritual state. Now, this is a tremendous point, which we uh, ignore at our peril, and uh, of which if we are ignorant, well, the sooner the better we acquaint ourselves with it. His whole attitude is a spiritual one, and he starts with the spiritual, always, exactly as our Lord himself did, when he put it, you remember, like this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. He was dealing with people who were always worrying about food and drink and clothing and things like that. Ah, he says the trouble with you is that you're starting at the wrong end. You're always starting with the material and the seen. Start with the unseen. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now that's exactly what the apostle does here. It's the spiritual welfare and the spiritual condition of these people that's uppermost in his mind, the thing that is chiefly in his heart. That's the first characteristic. The second is that his prayer is a very specific one. As I say, it isn't a mere general prayer. 
But he singles out certain matters, he specifies certain things, he isolates certain particulars. And in particular, he brings them forward one by one in his prayer to God on behalf of these people. Now then, here is another very important point. True prayer, true Christian praying, praying in the Spirit, praying in Christ, is not only spiritual prayer, but it is always specific. You know, my friends, we tell a good deal about ourselves in our prayers and in our praying. I suppose there is no better index ultimately to one's spiritual state and condition than one's prayers. If a man's prayers are formal, it means that his whole position is very formal. If he is more concerned about beauty of language and of diction and of things like that, well, you can be sure that his main concern, again, is with the externals. Is there freedom? Is there spirituality? Is there displayed an understanding of the essential character and nature of the Christian life? Now, let's take it individually and singly. When you pray to God, what do you pray for? What's your greatest concern about yourself this morning? Are you concerned chiefly about circumstances and conditions, your body, your affairs, or are you concerned about your spiritual state and condition? Which is it, I say, that receives more, most attention and most time in your personal prayers and devotion? Are you primarily concerned, do you put, as Paul puts first, the whole question of your spiritual growth and development, your knowledge of God, your relationship to him, and your enjoyment of him, is that the big thing? Or is it things? These things that belong to the external. Well, now I say that the apostle is not only essentially spiritual, but he is specific. There are certain things with regard to this spiritual condition that he is concerned about in particular. And here he mentions them one by one. Now I would say again that there is nothing that is really so important and so vital in our spiritual nurture and development than just this very thing. This is indeed the key to a true understanding of life this is the real key to the solution of all problems. Now, the apostle was concerned about the problems besetting the Ephesians. Yes, but you see, it's this whole question of approach. He approaches the particular problems, many of which were material and external, not directly. He goes this way around at them. He starts with this, and he knows that if he puts this right, that that'll be right. Now, that's the thing, it seems to me here, that stands out at the very beginning as we approach this great prayer of the Apostle. Now then, what does this method therefore really mean? What are the characteristics of the method? Here are people 
They are Christians. He's told us all about that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They've been converted. They've believed the truth. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And he's already been praying for them that they may understand certain things. Yet he hasn't finished. No, no. He's concerned about them. There are certain things yet. And he knows they've got these problems. They're worrying about him. They've got their own problems. What do they need? How is he going to help them? in the position in which they are. Well, now, here are some of the characteristics. You notice that he does not make light of the problem. The New Testament never does that. And uh, the truly Christian approach to the problems of life is never one that makes light of them. Psychology does that, of course, that's the essence of psychology. Its concern is not so much with truth as with happiness. And psychology being concerned merely to give us a happy feeling is not over particular as to how it does it. So it comes to us and it says it's all right, it may never happen. And so on. Or it may take the situation and say, well, now, come after all, it's not quite as bad, and so on. Now, that's not, that's not this method at all. You'll never find that in the New Testament, never, nor in the Old Testament. It never tries to minimize a problem or a difficulty. That is, I say, the very opposite of what it does. That is the worldly way of trying to help us when we're in troubles and problems. We just pat one another on the back and we say, it's all right. Well, it isn't all right. And it's very wrong to say that it is all right if it isn't all right. Now, here is this essential honesty that characterizes the scriptural and the Christian approach always. Or, let me put it like this. It uh, never promises that the problem or the difficulty or whatever it is will soon be removed either. It doesn't just come to us and say, well, it's quite, quite true, you are in these circumstances, but it's all right, it'll soon be gone. You'll never find anything like that here. There is nothing so characteristic of the scripture as its realism. I, I want to emphasize this because it does seem to me to be the key to the understanding of this prayer. The New Testament tells us very frankly and very plainly in the world ye shall have tribulations. It doesn't promise us an easy time. It isn't a cheery kind of optimism. It doesn't say that once you come to Christ, the whole world will be changed, you'll walk with a light step, and you'll never have any problems anymore. Never. Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Unto you on the behalf of Christ it is given not only to believe on his name, but to suffer for his name's sake. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. Look at a book like the book of Revelation, which is full of prophecies of trials and troubles and tribulations. There's nothing here, you see, which uh, leads us to think that all our difficulties are suddenly going to be removed, that we walk into some kind of magic circle. It's quite the reverse. In fact, it, it is the reverse because it's not only true, but because 
If the New Testament didn't do this, it wouldn't enable us to meet the situation and to overcome it and to be more than conquerors. It is of the essence of its method to show us this, that because this is a sinful world, there must be trials and troubles and problems and tribulations in it. It's because of sin. And that is why, you see, a Christian should not be surprised at the state of the world this morning. It's your philosophers and psychologists and false optimists who ought to be surprised. And they are surprised. And they're cast down, of course, because they believed, you see, they could put everything right. But now the Christian starts with this principle. That while there is sin left in this world, there will be trouble. The way of the transgressor is hard. There is no peace, hath my God, to the wicked. There isn't and there won't be and there can't be. Sin, the lust that's in the human breast and heart is the cause of war and discord and all our troubles. And while it's there, there will be troubles. Now, you say this is very pessimistic. I say it's realistic. It's not pessimistic to face facts. Pessimism comes in after you face the facts. How do you face them? You see, it's not true optimism uh, just not to look at the facts. Because optimism, true optimism, is always thoroughly realistic. It starts by looking at everything as it is, at its very worst, and then, by the truth that it has, overcomes it. Now then, the apostle here, I say, is not promising anything easy or simple. No, no. There are no shortcuts in the spiritual life. There are certain methods, and we've got to realize these principles, these premises. Now then, what, what else do we say as a negative? Well, just this. He doesn't uh, pray that some method may be evolved for fighting these problems and difficulties and situations directly. Christianity is never concerned primarily to destroy our enemies or to destroy the difficulties and the problems. Well, what is its method? Well, here it is. In the light of all these things, in the face of all these things, he prays, that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now here is the principle. And to me it's one of the most thrilling things about this New Testament truth. The Christian way of dealing with all these things is not so much to do anything about them as to do something about us. The Christian method is that which builds up our resistance. This inner man by the Spirit. Now may I put this to you in the form of an illustration. I often feel that this uh, biblical teaching about uh, the attack and the response is very analogous to that which happens in nature, in the case of the physical body and disease. It's a very convenient way of looking at this whole problem. Uh, sin and evil and Satan and all the forces and the things that would get us down and depress us and destroy us are like diseases attacking, germs and microbes and so on. That's the picture. Now, how does the body deal with this situation? At this moment, this building is full of germs and viruses, 
of various sizes and shapes, some of them so small that you can't see them, ultra-microscopic, and uh, they're very powerful and potent, and they're capable of producing terrible diseases and capable of destroying life. And we're all the whole time being attacked by these things, whether we're aware of it or not, it's there, and they're inside us, in our bodies. Our bodies are full of billions and billions of germs, any of which at any moment can become lethal and destroy us. Now then, how does the body deal with these things? Well, you see, the method is this. There is a mechanism in the body which is designed to resist this attack. There's the infection. Here is the resistance. What is the resistance composed of? Well, you sometimes refer to it as a man's natural constitution. His physique, if you like. Some men are given better constitutions than others. Though you may put them and expose them to the same infection as another, while the other is stricken and struck down, they are unaffected. Why? Well, they've got resistance. You've often heard a term like this, that a child, for instance, is vaccinated and it doesn't take. Oh, they say there must have been some mistake, so they do it again. He still doesn't take. Ah, oh, says the doctor, that child has got a natural immunity. A natural immunity. He's done nothing about it, but it's just a part of his nature, his constitution. And so you find people, children and young people now being vaccinated against tuberculosis and so on. Some of them don't take, what, natural immunity. And what a wonderful thing it is. There is a resistance in the body. Now, but uh, that resistance is not always very strong. It isn't always very perfect. So you see a very good way of meeting this infection, this onslaught, this attack which is made upon us is this, is to build up the resistance. Now there are schools of thought about this as you know. The way to build up the resistance you see is to take exercise, get out into the open air, fill your lungs with air and with oxygen, take the right kind of food. Build up your resistance. There are others, you see, who don't do that. They're always taking drugs of various descriptions, trying to meet the enemy directly. They're not concerned about building up their resistance. They're dealing in this direct manner with the enemy, taking drugs, taking this or that to relieve or to kill the germs and so on and so forth, or perhaps operating or removing something. Now, there are two methods. And the point I'm making is this, that the method that is being advocated here and being implied by the apostle is this wonderful method of building up the resistance. There are the circumstances. There is the attack. What does the apostle pray for? Well, this, that God, according to the riches of his glory, may strengthen with might the inner man so that whatever the attack may be, the resistance is so great that he'll be made more than conqueror. Now, here I say we are face to face with the central biblical teaching of how to live in a world like this and how to keep going in it and how to be more than conqueror in spite of everything that happens in it. Now, listen to our blessed Lord putting that. In the first verse of the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, you will find our Lord saying this, that men should always pray and not faint. He says if you want to avoid fainting, pray. 
What does prayer do? Well, prayer, you see, if I may so use it, fills the lungs of your soul with the oxygen of God himself. If you want to stand on your feet and not to falter, fill yourself with God. Pray and not faint. In other words, you see, you don't spend your time in dealing with the things that are tending to get you down. You build up yourself in your most holy faith, as Jude puts it. Now, this is the only way whereby we can ever know what it is to rejoice in tribulations. This is the only way of being what the Apostle calls in writing to the Romans in the 8th chapter, being more than conquerors in spite of everything that attacks us. Or, as he puts it in that 4th chapter of 2 Corinthians, which I read just now, if you want to be able to look at life as it's beating against you this morning and trying to batter you and to get you down, if you want to be able to look at all that and say, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, this is the way. Because he says, while we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. It's the same principle you see everywhere. Build up the inner men. Strengthen the resistance. The principle, I think, is an obvious one, isn't it? And yet, you know, we so tend to ignore it or to fail to see it that I'm repeating it and I'll go on impressing it. Here's the principle in another form. Put the center right and the rest look after itself. Put the source of supply right and you needn't worry much about the three. The trouble is generally in the source. Go back to the beginning. There's a proverb which says, isn't there as a man thinks? So he is. And it's perfectly true. As a man thinks, so he is. So you see, if you want to put the man right, put his thinking right. Don't go at the men and tackle the problem here and there and elsewhere. Piecemeal. Simply patching up. Go back to the center. As a man thinks, it's his thinking that's wrong. That's why he is wrong. So put his thinking right. Or listen to the wise men who wrote the book of Proverbs. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs uh, verse... Uh, 23 of chapter 4. Here it is with all the wisdom and characteristic of the Old Testament. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of your heart are all the issues of life. Everything. The heart really does control everything. And the heart here means, of course, the center of the personality, not merely the seat of the emotions. It's the central man. Now put that right, and then everything else will be all right. Our Lord put that negatively, you remember, when he said this. It's not that which comes out, which is important in the case of a man, it's that which goes in. You see, it's that which is the center, the heart. It is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and all these things. In other words, in the last analysis, you see, it isn't the temptations of the streets of London. It's the heart of the man who's facing them. The same men can face the same conditions. One falls, the other goes on. Where was the difference? Not in London, in the heart of the man. Out of the heart. So you see, the thing you need to pay attention to is the heart. 
Oh, listen to Ezra. Putting it in a very lyrical manner, Ezra had understood this principle when he said this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And how true it is. You want strength to do your work and to do the things that are there waiting for you to do. Well, now, the, the tendency is, of course, uh, to pay attention to your muscles and things like that. And you go in for exercise. No better. What's the matter? Ah, oh, well, says Ezra, the trouble is with you. It doesn't matter how physically fit you are. If you've got something preying on your mind, if you've got a worry, you won't be able to do your work. You may be 100% physically fit, but if there's something gnawing at your heart and upsetting you and worrying you, I say you'll feel physically weak. On the other hand, if you are fairly weak in your physique, but suddenly something comes to you which fills you with joy and with gladness, with a kind of divine mirth, suddenly you feel like a giant refreshed. And you've got power as if you could move houses. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The heart is the thing that really governs everything. Well now, my friends, this is the great principle which the apostle is enunciating here, and he puts it in this interesting form, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men. Now, let us, as we close this morning, just look at what exactly is meant by this inner men. We've already got the answer to it in 2 Corinthians 4.16, where the apostle said, you remember, that though our outward men perish, yet the inner man is renewed day by day. Or listen again to the apostle saying it in Romans 7.22. He says, I delight in the law of the Lord after the inner men, the inward men. He's in trouble, you see. There are two men in him. There is a law in his members dragging him down. But I delight in the law of God after the inner men. Now what is this inner man? Well, obviously, this inner man is the opposite of the outward men. How obvious, isn't it? And yet, you know, the trouble with most people in the world this morning is that they never knew that there was a difference between the inner man and the outward man. It's the profoundest discovery we can ever make in our Christian experience. The inner man. What is he? Well, he's the opposite of the body and all its faculties and functions. It's these other men that's apart from them. It is, if you like, the innermost part of our being. It's the spiritual part of our being. It includes the heart and the mind and the soul and the spirit of the regenerate man, the man that is in Christ Jesus. You know, the ultimate trouble with the unregenerate, with the non-Christian, is just this, that he lacks that inner man. He doesn't know anything about the inner man. He doesn't believe in the inner man. He's a man who lives only to the outward part. He's living a life in the flesh only. He's living a life which is really nothing but a life of the body. And what you may call the psychical part of man. There's nothing spiritual about him. 
His whole life is bounded by what he's aware of as sensations in himself and in his correspondence with the world that can be seen and heard and felt and handled. That's his only life, and that's his total life. The body and its faculties and its relationships with similar people and similar things in the world in which he finds himself. That is the tragedy of men in sin. That's the tragedy of men as the result of the fall. He is no longer aware of the fact that he is a spiritual being. He is not aware of the fact that there is something higher than all this in men. But man is to him, you see, at best just a reasoning animal. An animal who happens to have an extra faculty, but which is simply in the same order, as it were, belongs to the same essential order of things, but it happens to be a higher one. The brain which the animal's got has got an extra kink in the case of men, and that's the only difference between men and the animal. There's no conception of this, I nearly called it duality in men, I mustn't use the term, because it's become a dangerous one in the light of the history of theology. But let me put it like this. He is not aware, I say, that in addition to all that, there is this other part of my being that Paul speaks about. I delight in the law of God after the inner man. Though my outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now this other man knows nothing about that. And this is the tragedy of man in sin. Let me put it in a contemporary form by putting it like this. The final tragedy of the natural man is that he has got no inner man to retreat into in times of trouble and stress and trial. Do you know what I mean, my friend? Do you know what I mean by retiring into the inner man? Do you know what it is when your life as a man in this world is overwhelmed by the things that are happening and you're on the point of falling and of fainting? But you don't. Why? You retreat into your inner men. And it's one of the most blessed experiences we can ever know. What I mean by that is, do you see that here was the Apostle Paul, old before his time because of his preaching and his traveling, and because of the persecutions and trials that he'd suffered and endured, and his body... Riddled probably with disease, that old eye complaint and other things. Some say that he had malaria and so on. I don't know. But obviously, he was a very sick man. Our outward man, he says, is perishing. But he doesn't just sit down in the corner and say, it's all up. I've had a fairly good innings. I've got to give place to others now. My time's come. I might as well turn my face to the wall and just face that the end is sure. Not at all. When he has realized and has looked with open eyes and with this characteristic honesty uh, on what is happening to the outward men, he then retreats to the inner men and he says, but the inner men is renewed day by day. As that is falling away, this is being built up. As the world is taking that and life and its processes are robbing me of that. This is receiving accessions of strength from heaven and from glory. He's retired into the inner man. Now the man, I say, who's not a Christian, knows nothing at all about this. 
poor fellow. He is dependent only upon circumstances. And he is entirely controlled by circumstances. He lives in one realm only, and he knows nothing at all about this other. And therefore he has no comfort and no consolation. So he has to fall back on his psychology and various tricks that he does to himself, or rushes off into pleasure just to forget it for the nonce, and so on. He really can't face it because he's only got one dimension, only one type, and it's tied up to that other, and when that goes, everything's gone. And he becomes depressed and disconsolate and wretched and hopeless. But thank God, what happens to us when we become Christian and receive this gift of the new birth and the new life is that a new man is put into us. A new order of life. A new realm. Something spiritual, something unseen, not the temporal, not the visible, not the vanishing, something which is of God. We are made partakers of the divine nature. A seed of divine life, this is scripture, is put into us and it grows and it develops and even that may help it to develop. Even trials and tribulations often stimulate us in a most glorious manner. I'm hesitating because I'm almost tempted to put it like this to you in a very personal form. You know, because of this inner man that is in us, we sometimes are unable to have great victories over the devil. The devil attacks us in many ways, as I'm hoping to show you next Sunday morning, in treating this whole question of the inner man and his need of strength. But you know, he sometimes overdoes it, and he makes a mistake. And he thereby reminds us of the position. The devil, as I'm going to tell you, will sometimes just keep us in a general state of depression. Weather like this, for instance, and a man's particular constitution and bad circulation. He feels slack. He can't think. He can't do things. And the devil encourages us with thoughts. It's hopeless and so on. But then he sometimes makes the mistake, you see, of too open an attack, perhaps in somebody else. Something is doing to somebody else. And in seeing what he does to another... You're suddenly awakened to the fact that it's he who's really doing it to you. And the inner man is revived even by the problem from the outside. And you overcome him and you're more than conqueror. I leave you at this this morning. Do you know about the inner man? Do you know that you've got an inner man? Is there this other that you're aware of, that you go into and retire into? This thing, though the outward is falling and collapsing and decomposing while you're watching it, is being renewed day by day and is being built up and has a vision of glory which is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. The whole secret, as the apostle here reminds us, is that we've got an inner man. And when that inner man has been strengthened by the Holy Spirit, it really is comparatively unimportant as to what, as to what happens around you and even to the outer man himself. May God give us the assurance of the possession of the inner man, the spiritual man, the new man in Christ Jesus. Amen.